0: talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900
1: CHML. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on Hamilton Today. Glad you're along. We're thrilled you're here because we have so many things to get to. Scott Thompson off vacation for today and tomorrow and next week. And so I'll be filling in for the next few days here from three till six. Glad you're with us. As I say, Uh, let me tell you, before we get to what's going on, let me remind you of the Twitter poll that is going on. For Go to Twitter, go to 900CHML. Do you support the city of Hamilton's plan to eventually convert Main Street from one way to two ways? Yes or no. That is the Twitter poll today. We would love to hear from you. Yesterday's Twitter poll. Do you think Patrick Brown's disqualification from the federal conservative leadership race was done to ensure... Pierre Polyev becomes the party's new leader. Yes, no, it's too early to say yes. 58%. 58% of you are conspiracy theorists. Hmm. 31% said no, and 11 said it's too easy to tell. Hmm. So we're talking to the conspiracy theorists, are we? Will, for tomorrow, let's arrange a show of all conspiracy theories. We'll get some JFK in there. We'll get some 9-11 stuff happening. We'll start talking about some other great conspiracy theories. We could do that. We could fill three full hours with nothing but conspiracy theories. Yes, we could do that. The Friday conspiracy theory three-hour radiothon. We do radiothons here on CHML for other things. I mean, more important things, raising money for children and things like that. But we could certainly do it to raise awareness of the conspiracy theories that we like to cling to. I'm, I'm I'm not entirely sure that I can jump on board with the 58% of you that see a conspiracy theory in this one. But, hey, you know what? It's okay. We ask for your opinion. We like your opinion. You don't always have to agree with your opinion, but it's your opinion and it counts. So today, give us your opinion on the other one. Do you support the city of Hamilton's plan to eventually convert Main Street from a one-way to a two-way street? No conspiracy theory here. And we're even going to talk about this later in the show. There are big plans for road changes in this city in an attempt to make our streets safer. But is the design the problem? That's really the, well, not a million dollar question, the multi-million dollar question. Is the design of our streets the issue or is it the people using it improperly? Well, we'll talk about that one as we go along. Uh, Let me tell you what else is coming up on the show today. We are... A country that is spending a lot of money on federal bureaucrats, a lot of money, more and more and more money. In fact, we spent over the last, over the term of COVID, over $1.5 billion just on overtime alone for our federal bureaucrats, while we were hiring roughly 15,000 new ones every year. How can we hire more and more and more people to do the work and still need that much overtime? Anyway, of course, it's only your tax dollars, so don't worry about it. No big deal. Gas prices, speaking of money, gas prices all over the map right now. Uh, Some of you are delighted with the way gas prices are heading, which is downwards. Others probably haven't seen a whole lot of a drop yet, or are going to see them bounce right back. We're going to be talking about what is going on with gas prices, and can we expect, if you are one of the fortunate few who has seen the prices drop, can you expect to see that sticking around? for some period of time. Let us, uh, let us hope so. As I said, uh Hamilton roads, we're going to get to that one this hour. We will be talking about the the city of Hamilton as a destination, not as a tourist destination, as a living destination. Steve Bust uh, will join us, reporter for the spectator has a fantastic piece. You can see it at the spec.com right now that points out that yes, as we have heard for years now, Hamilton is quite a destination for people moving here, but not, the, the story that we're learning when you dive into the numbers is not the same story that we've been told for a while now. It's a really interesting twist on what we had expected. Steve will explain that one later. We've got another wave of COVID apparently coming our way. That's very exciting. The Canadian military is now saying, if you want to have purple hair and tattoos on your face, that's cool. We want diversity and individualism in our armed forces in order to try and recruit. Is that really what we want in our military? Is it really individualism and diversity? Is that a good thing in a military? Well, we'll we'll find out later on as well as that. We're going to be talking about world poverty. There's a lot of it now thanks to what's going on in the world. Uh, the Blue Jays, not where we expected them to be when the season started. And James Caan, father of Buddy the Elf, adopted father. Well, no, real father of Buddy the Elf. I've got to keep my father straight on in, in the movie Elf. He was in Brian's Song. He was in of course in The Godfather. He was in uh, a million other movies passed away today, or at least we heard that he has passed away. We'll be talking about James Colin. uh So many other things as well. A little while ago, we learned of a report that highlighted the fact that the federal bureaucracy had hit less than half of its performance objectives over the course of COVID. Not ideal. Now you say, okay, well, you know, COVID was a dis- disruption maybe we shouldn't have expected that they were going to hit all their performance objectives. Well, there's more news today, though, that adds to that, that that makes us, I think, or should make you even more scratching your head about what's going on. Since 2019, the federal government has spent $1.9 billion in overtime pay. So we're paying a lot of money to get Not good results, okay? And so you say, still, COVID was a huge disruptor, and so we had to pay more because the people who were doing the work, you know, there weren't as many of them, and they were thrown off by everything that had to happen. Well, except at the same time, the federal government was adding roughly 15,000 new employees each year to not achieve these standards while paying $1.6 billion in overtime. No matter which thing you keep saying, but, 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 there's an answer and it doesn't make it seem any better. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us now. Franco, how are you today?
2: You know, I'm doing well. Not as good as the bureaucrats who are collecting, uh, you know, millions in bonuses and now more than a billion in overtime, but I'm doing pretty good.
1: Well, it, you, look, you've talked about this a lot of times, this kind of thing. You can, Every time one of these reports comes out, you you cannot personally be surprised by anything you're seeing. Well,
2: I am surprised by some of these numbers. Um, So a few things that I want to add on to your opening segment. First, we have to remember that the government departments were not meeting half of their targets even before COVID-19. In 2019, they met 49% of their own performance targets, right? But here's where we were really surprised when we dug into the $1.6 billion of overtime payments that have been going on since 2019. First, we have to remember that more than half of public administration bureaucrats were employed from home during the pandemic, that's according to Statistics Canada. But let's let's talk about some of the notable examples within each department. You had Elections Canada spend 1.4 million dollars on overtime in 2020, which was a non-election year. You had the House of Commons and the Senate spending more than $13 million on overtime pay during the pandemic, even though both houses of Parliament were sitting in a virtual hybrid format. You have the employees at the Fisheries and Oceans Canada Department receiving about $98 million in overtime pay during the pandemic, $98 million. Now, that is more than what both of the federal government's health departments received in overtime combined. So, when you look at the department numbers, there is a ton of head scratchers here.
1: Well, oh, yeah, there are. I and mean, here's what I don't get during, the, during COVID, during the pandemic, many private sector workplaces had to lay people off during the pandemic. And so, to keep going, you had owners or bosses who were working extra time. I get that. I, I understand that circumstances required that certain people were going to do more to keep heads above water. I absolutely get that. And I applaud those people who did that. But here you've got the federal government not just paying overtime, but hiring more people each year. Surely if you have more people to do the work, you would have less need to pay overtime. I don't understand how you can do both. You either have more overtime with fewer people or more people and fewer overtime. How do you possibly balance both of these things?
2: Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, that is the big question mark because they hired more than 15,000 new employees each year. Each year, more than 15,000 new federal bureaucrats were added. Then they paid about $1.6 billion in overtime since 2019. So they're spending buckets of cash hiring more employees. They're spending buckets of cash on overtime pay. And then they're still failing to meet half of their own performance targets. So I think taxpayers have every right to be wondering, you know, what's going on in Ottawa right now. And not only that, you mentioned... Um, the private sector, so much pain, pay cuts, job losses, people losing their businesses, perhaps for good. Now, of course, it's going to be the private sector taxpayers that have to pay for all of this additional spending. And let's not forget that during the pandemic, during lockdowns, more than 300,000 federal government employees received at least one pay raise, and the federal government has no records at all of ever giving its employees ever a pay cut.
1: You know, look, if you work in the public sector, th- this is this is sounding all pretty juicy and pretty great. Um, if you work in the private sector and you haven't received pay increases or you've been falling behind, I got to tell you, all these times that we talk, it only gets more frustrating. And, you know, now that I know this is not a federal thing necessarily, but now that we hear, you know, that teachers unions are about to start negotiating mm-hmm. and this union and that union are all started negotiating and they all want cost of living, which is now a huge amount more than it has been in recent years. The we where well, there is no reason to believe that any of these numbers are going to do anything but go up and up and up and up and up.
2: Yeah, and and you know what really adds to the frustration. I mean, of course, to your point, there is only one taxpayer, so it almost seems like we're getting uh, billed with extra cost at every level of government these days, whether it's federal, whether it's provincial, whether it's municipal. But what I think is so frustrating is is like, okay, well, who's going to stop this? Well, the people who are supposed to be watching over our our tax dollars are supposed to be the politicians. Well, what have they been doing over the last three years or two years during the pandemic? Well, they've given themselves three pay raises since COVID-19.
0: So while you and
2: yours have struggled, the person who's supposed to be your representative in Ottawa continues to give themselves higher pay. (laughs) You know, like that's so frustrating.
1: Yeah. And Franco, lest anyone think that we're making this or that I'm making this a political thing. Look, Doug Ford and the provincial government just came in and made almost everybody an, an either a cabinet minister or a, an assistant, which gave everybody raises. I, it's, 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 an, it's across the board. It's not just one government. It's not just the Trudeau government. And you're right. I don't know where you look now if you're someone who is fiscally concerned about where the debt and deficits are in this country and province. I don't know where you turn to say who is who is being careful with the taxpayers money, because I see nobody of any stripe being careful with it.
2: Well, I want to add two things there. You mentioned the Ford government. But well, let's talk about the conservatives in Ottawa. Right. Just to really paint the picture. We just had a federal election. I don't remember seeing any of the major parties talking about reversing the pay hikes for politicians, right? We have a Conservative Party leadership race going on right now. Maybe I missed it. I've been following it pretty closely. Maybe I missed it, but I haven't heard one of the candidates who are running for Conservative Party leaders say that they would reverse the pandemic pay hikes for politicians. So it's not just the Liberals in Ottawa. Of course, they deserve, deserve a huge part of the blame. But where's the official opposition standing up for taxpayers' money on this? But the second thing I want to add, because you, you asked, you, where do we look for fiscal responsibility? Well, if the governments continue to spend money like crazy, fiscal responsibility is going to be imposed on them. They're going to be forced to make tougher cuts from the bond fund managers. That's what we saw throughout the 90s, all levels of government of different political stripes where they did have to make significant cuts. And in Alberta, you had Premier Ralph Klein at the time go to the union bosses and say, hey, look, either you all take 5% pay cuts or I have to lay off 5% of the workforce.
1: Yeah, and nobody likes that when that happens. I mean, that that, that what happens is some party will finally get elected vowing austerity. And everyone will say, yeah, we better elect them because whatever it is, because we have to control this. And then they get into office and those moves start to come. And Everyone goes, wait a second, I don't like this. Let's vote the people back in who like to spend money. That's more fun. And so, you know, it's a cycle.
2: And either you make tough decisions now or tougher decisions are going to be forced on us. I mean, this year alone, it's costing taxpayers $27 billion just to cover the interest charges on the government's credit card bills federally. To put that in per- into perspective, that's more than what the Alberta government will spend an entire year on health care. So the more that we are wasting on interest charges, because you have governments running wild with the credit card for years, the less that we're actually going to get in government services.
1: So we can spend. Uh, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks as always. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Well, you might be feeling a little bit upbeat today. Things might be feeling pretty good because if you're not walking like Kasim, if you're driving your car and you have to fill up your tank and you drive by a station and you look at the sign, it says that the gas prices are down. Finally, there is a little bit of light on the horizon. There is a little bit of good news when it comes to Filling up your car. I mean, the only other good news is that you walk away feeling lighter because your wallet has taken a bit of a, you know, some of the weight off your wallet. Although that's not really a good thing. Just maybe makes you feel I don't know. But gas prices are down. Woo! Let's bring in Dan McTague. You know, we bring in Dan McTague, who is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And every time we bring Danny in, it seems he is the bearer of bad news because gas prices are going up today. Dan, today is your day. It's the Good News Dan Show today. <laughs> It Way is to go, a Dan!
3: Fantastic
1: day. <laughs> Why is this happening now? Well, it has to do
3: with everyone being spooked. Uh, these uh, moves by central banks to raise interest rates, the idea that uh, uh, you know the sanctions against Russia uh, aren't going to cause Russia to stop producing oil—they've got lots of friends and clients in India and, in particular, China. Um, and of course, uh, this idea that uh, interest rates will eventually bring the economy uh, to a standstill and push us into a, uh, a recession had some energy analysts, and I don't think they're very smart, saying uh, that's a global recession. It's here. It's now. Let's uh, let's let's just jump off the <laughs> let's just jump off the cliff. And so that's what many of them did, and they uh, they dropped the oil prices about ten bucks a barrel they knocked gasoline down in the past week roughly about 40 cents a gallon so that's good enough not only for a 12 cent a litre decrease today so you're seeing a lot of gas stations here in hamilton area toronto uh no higher than a dollar 79.9 tomorrow it'll drop another three cents a litre to 176.9 so you might you know i was in hamilton last evening uh down off of uh uh, Red Hills and Barton Street. I noticed uh, some of the gas stations there were, you know, uh, you know, already at a dollar seventy nine. So some of those might down be down towards a dollar seventy three, dollar seventy four tomorrow. That's the good news, and it really ends there because unfortunately Saturday, um, unfortunately, the prices are going back up five cents huh. a
1: liter. It's pretty amazing, though, that we, uh, you, us, the rest of us, we're driving around and we see gas at the pumps at a $1.79, and we're like, yeah, $1.79, what a steal. <laughs> How quickly our opinions have changed on what a good price is for gas.
3: Yeah, I think we're getting conditioned, as the old expression goes.
1: We are so happy because
3: we're not paying $2.20. Um, so, you know, this seems like a real bargain for us because it's down 45 $0.50 cents a liter. And so uh, it feels good. Uh, feels better than anything we felt certainly going back since uh, January when we started seeing prices moving in this vicinity in the one sixty one seventy range. So um, you know it's it's one of those things where if you can if you can get it, take advantage of it while it's there. But uh, here's the problem with all this, Scott. You it once prices begin to fall, in an environment where oil and gasoline um, inventories are pretty tight, especially gasoline and diesel. You know, lower prices just, you know, increases demand and creates an even bigger problem on the supply side. So that's why I think this thing's going to be very short-lived and why, um, you know, not very uh, bright types in the uh, in the energy field making these kind of decisions. They're not really in the energy field. Those are really financial positions, paper holders of some of these assets um you know aren't uh, aren't doing themselves a big favor by jumping off uh, by jumping off a cliff because it's only going to mean higher prices in the uh, medium term
1: for for the short term though that whatever time it is that we have these prices do you believe there is a psychological benefit to seeing gas under 2 dollars a liter as well as a financial one do you believe that people are more likely that somehow there's a magic there that people are more likely to fill up or go on a trip or drive or whatever when it's below that number I do. Uh, it's not a big one though, because we're you know we've been accustomed to two years. Two years ago,
3: right now we were paying ninety five cents a year. Last year, a dollar thirty one, uh, going to a dollar thirty five. So you know, for many people, it's uh, in the short term it looks better. Longer term, most people sit back and say, "Boy, you know what? I haven't had a thirty forty percent increase in my uh, in my pay, so it doesn't change a whole lot." But yeah, you know, it might provide a little bit more you know uh you know a little bit more sizzle in our step i'm not sure um but if you're going to save you know 10 12 bucks a tank full um driving to wherever you're going to go that's uh, money in your pocket and so any small amount never hurts in the same way it could be argued that even the small amount of uh taxes the provincial government gave in terms of uh you know of cutting taxes back 5.7 cents a liter which actually turns out to 6.4 with hst it's not a lot and it probably won't make a massive impact, but uh, as my uh, as my wife always says to me who helps the finances in our household every little bit counts
1: there is a piece in the star today that says those provincial tax cuts um don't get fooled by them because they may be nice now but that's money that we're losing in taxes that will make it more expensive for other things down the road health care and education and everything else I mean, is that a fair point, or do you look at this and you say, "Well, yeah, but you know what? Everybody spends money on gas, and and if it's immediate and it's a break in your pocket right now, it's a good thing."
3: Well, they, let's understand that the federal and provincial governments are making money still by having HST applied to the higher price, so they're not really losing revenue now, are they? And in fact, they're not. Not only are they not losing revenue, they're making money where they didn't actually budget for it. So. Obviously, the Toronto Star didn't call Dan McTeague because he would have also <laughs> said to him, why do you not have a problem with the provincial government having to spend $6.5 billion in deficits so that we could pay for our green energy that your, your paper supported back in uh, 2010 and has so far uh, defended uh, for many years? That's not a shot at the Toronto Star. That's not what's meant. What, it's, the point is that I think if we're going to be objective, I think we have to look at all aspects of this. And, uh you know, there's a lot of folks out there with an interest in uh, in green energy, and that's the green energy that's driving these prices as high as they are. But it's causing uh, the proverbial brink, uh, you know, being hit in places like Germany and Spain. It's uh, cost Mr. Johnson uh, to a large extent. I know he was there last week in the U.K. meeting with members of Parliament uh, in, in, in the U.K., and uh, there's no doubt uh, that I can say with some certainty that Mr. Johnson... Uh, is no longer Prime Minister, or at least will no longer be Prime Minister to a large extent because of his failed Green policy. So, you know, sooner or later, Canadians will ask the tough questions and uh, it really won't matter who's going to try to find a bit of a distraction uh, in terms of uh, their arguments. Uh, You cannot get away from the notion that Canada, having the third largest provable reserves of energy in the world, walking away from its responsibilities to get pipelines built to the, uh, to coastal lines in this uh, in this world, have a lot to do with driving up the global cost of energy. And uh, so, when you hear the argument, "Oh, it's a global issue, and we were just we're followers," no, we had a lot to do with not getting in and providing the world with oil. Saudi Arabia uh, is number one. Venezuela Venezuela one, Saudi Arabia two. Russia has the eighth largest provable reserves in the world, and it's got Europe over a barrel. Imagine what the third largest country could have done had it not been so willing to kill pipelines
1: with the help of uh, several media who thought it was pretty cool and trendy. Dan McTague, president for the Canadian uh, of Canadians for Affordable Energy, really appreciate the time as always. Dan, thank you for this.
3: Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, let's enjoy this day and tomorrow as well, uh, Scott.
2: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is. With Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News, today's talk 900
1: The city of Hamilton is going to be undergoing some changes, starting with Main Street, one of its main thoroughfares. There's going to be some changes after councillors approved some changes to try and make the city safer and there is going to be wider lanes, um, going from five to four lanes, a lot of other things. I wanna bring in Ward 1 Councillor Maureen Wilson to talk about these changes. Councillor, thank you for the time today, I always appreciate it.
4: Oh, pleasure to be here, thank you. Do you
1: believe that these kind of changes are the kinds of things that can have the impact that you're after to make a safer city?
4: I do, um, so let's backtrack. The motion that was uh, successfully sponsored by myself and uh, co-sponsored by Councillor Nan of Ward 3 uh, called for three things. One, make some immediate changes to Main and King to make it safer. Two, uh, get the approval to convert Main Street from one-way to two-way. And three, then begin looking at all our existing one-way arterial roads and begin the the process of converting them from one-way to two-way. This is the first of that three-part motion. Um, uh, It's not gonna be one singular uh, act or change on Main Street, we have to look at the street in its totality because that's how it works. Uh, We know with great certainty that Main Street has been consistently uh, on record as a home of too many collisions that hurt and kill people. And so the status quo was not acceptable to this city any longer. And I'm pleased that we're moving ahead with these actions.
1: I mean, it's interesting you bring up that that latter point because one of the comments that's been made, and I know you've heard this before, is we've had the streets that were designed this way for decades now, and it's in recent years that we've seen the numbers of bad accidents and and injuries and deaths go up. And so some people have said, well... That doesn't sound like it's the fault of street design because they weren't that bad for a long time. It sounds like it's the fault of drivers. And so does adjusting the design, is that the way to go or should it be going after the bad drivers and the bad actors here? How will the design change cause the driving to be better or stop the accidents from the bad drivers?
4: Well, when a street is designed for efficiency and for speed, you're going to speed. It's just human nature, and I guess I, I don't uh, I don't know if I agree with the the premise of the question. Okay. And when our streets were um, overnight changed from one way to two way in the nineteen fifties, there there were concerns raised on a, a number of fronts. There were cons- concerns raised from those downtown neighborhoods of what the impact was going to be on livability and safety. And additionally there were grave concerns raised by small businesses in and along those corridors that this was going to create an environment in which uh, you would drive through and not want to drive to. Uh, because it's it's a hostile environment. And uh, I would argue that those concerns have uh, been borne out. Uh, it is not in our economic self-interest. It's not in the interest of small business. They told us that in the 1950s. They were absolutely right. Um, it's uh, These changes are in our collective interests. Design, we know from all the work on Vision serial Vision Zero, which this council voted for unanimously, along with the action plan, is design is one of the the, the greatest um, predictors, if you will, or enablers of, of good driving or driving that puts both the driver at risk and those uh, around them.
1: This is going uh, now. Some of the things that you've talked about, they they can be done, I would think, without a whole lot of issue around it. I mean, you can make a street go two-way, different painting and and putting up lights that facing the other direction and things like that. Not an impossibility. There are some real challenges though here long-term. How, especially around say Dundurn Street, that area where you're going over the highway and ramps are now designed just to go on to highways in one direction and things. Is there a way do, do any of these studies show that you know realistically there's a way that we can do this in the long term and make this work? or or are there real problems with trying to make these streets go both ways and 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 work the way we would want them
4: to? I think when you're designing or redesigning a city or doing anything with respect to the city, you have to um, start by asking yourself, what are our values? What is it that we are going to put a premium on? And I would argue the first uh, obligation and duty of any elected government at any level is to do what it needs to do, what it can do to support and secure the health and safety of residents. Job number one, everything is possible if you are very clear on what you value. Do we value life and livability or do we value efficiency? For too long, over too many decades, we have valued the efficiency of one user. The consequence of that has been, um, for Hamilton, one collision every 63 minutes, one person injured every six hours, one fatality every 26 days, one pedestrian collision every one and a half days, one cyclist collision, every two and a half days. Those are not measures of a healthy city. Um, Those are not measures of a prosperous city. And that's why uh, this is years in the making of of residents asking us uh, to to make (laughs) the streets safer for motorists, for pedestrians, for children, for grandparents, for cyclists. And uh, so streets are for all users of all ages, of all abilities. And I think we're beginning to move in that direction. Are we going to move in that direction as fast as some of us would like? No. Uh, but these, these streets, uh, the lesson that we can take from the 1950s is there is considerable risk that comes when you do do something overnight. You have to do careful study. You do not want to save a problem. You do not want to shift a problem. You need to solve a problem. I have great confidence and faith in our chief engineer mr soldo Um, and uh, we're going to get there this is the first uh, pillar in the motion uh, that we put forward in may and we're going to continue to move in that direction of of safety
1: ward one counselor maureen wilson wish we had a lot more time uh it's a very interesting topic wish we could get into more but we will in uh in the in the future to come uh thank you for doing this really appreciate your time thank
4: you very much
1: we have known for Years now that people are moving to Hamilton, we've known this, that people are coming because, first of all, our house prices at one point were cheaper, and, well, then they were still cheaper than Toronto, but we've we we've had this influx. And we have always understood what's happening here. It's Toronto people coming here. Well, let me read something from a piece Steve Bust has up at the spec.com today. Steve, a reporter with The Spectator. The common perception is that the influx has been driven by migrants from the city of Toronto who want to trade one inner city urban environment for a less expensive one in the heart of lower Hamilton. And yes, that has been happening according to census data. But a new study shows the great migration to Hamilton is being driven more by an exodus from the suburban parts of the greater Toronto area to the suburban communities of the amalgamated cities, Stony Creek, Glenbrook, Ancaster, and Waterdown. Steve to wrote the piece, and I would encourage everyone to go read it at thespec.com. It's very interesting. Steve joins us now. Steve, how are you today? Great, Scott. How are you? I am doing great. It's been a lot, you know. We work together, but I almost never see you anymore. So it's uh, it's good to have you on here. This is um, this is a piece. It's a fascinating piece because it really does fly in the face of accepted wisdom. We all knew, Steve. We all understood exactly what was happening, and you've just pointed out that maybe we didn't really know exactly what was happening.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, the study was done by uh, Brian Doucette from uh, the University of Waterloo, and and he's been interested in Hamilton issues for, for quite some time. And, and as he puts it, you know, everyone knows somebody who knows somebody who moved to Hamilton from Toronto. And as you said, you know, that is true. But those numbers are actually dwarfed by the sort of suburban migrants uh, who are basically just turning, you know, one suburban area in for another suburban area. So they're just the... Uh, You know, really what this is, is just kind of expanding the boundary of the GTA further and further and further. I mean, there's a a university, a Western Ontario University prof, uh, Mike Moffat, who kind of coined the term, you know, drive till you qualify uh, in terms Mm. of of a mortgage. So, uh, you know, that certainly seems to be what what this is all about. People just kind of pushing themselves further and further and further away from the center of Toronto.
1: I want to read uh, two things. I'll do one at a time here, but there's two quotes that I want to read you from your piece that were really, and there's so much interesting stuff in here, but these really stood out to me. Here's the first one. It's a quote from, I think it's from the study itself rather than from you. The statistics show a movement from the GTA to Hamilton, but in the suburbs, at any rate, it is not in any meaningful sense about Hamilton. So people are moving here, but they're not connected to, necessarily to Hamilton, as we know it, it's all suburban stuff, right?
5: Yeah. So uh, that was Richard Harris, a professor emeritus at McMaster, who does a lot of sort of uh, geography and and, uh, neighborhood work. Um, And and so really what he's saying is that, um, you know, people are sort of exchanging one suburban environment for another one that just happens to be within the amalgamated city of Hamilton's borders, but they're not it's it's uh, you know i i know this is going to hurt people but it it's not that they're moving to hamilton because of you know what longtime hamilton people might think of as being hamilton i.e. the you know the inner city jackson square it's the um, opposite you know bayfront park that sort of thing they're really just one cookie cutter suburban uh neighborhood for another one that just happens to be in stony creek or ancaster or waterdown and so you know, and I interviewed uh, some people who had made this switch to Hamilton, and I was surprised by several of them who said, "Yeah, I really don't have anything to do with Hamilton." You know, if you're talking about the you know sort of lower inner city of Hamilton, um, you know, one guy said, "You know, I said, what do you do in Hamilton?" He Goes nothing, absolutely nothing. He said, "I had to go there for my vaccine booster shot. That's it." Um, so they they don't they don't necessarily have that connection to the sort of former city of Hamilton that we might think or maybe even hope
1: for uh you uh you're a genius at doing this stuff because that was the other quote that i was going to ask you about so you saved me some time here but it's true that, that there seems to be this sense that we are going to move geographically into your region but not have a whole lot to do with the city it it does steve when i when i read this it, to me, helps explain this sense that some people have in the city sometimes that we have two cities, that we have the inner city, we have the suburbs, we have the downtown, we have the mountain. It kind of explains part of that thinking of why it's such a why it's such a challenge to make everybody click together.
5: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it, it is something that, um, you know, if, if I was somebody that worked for the city of Hamilton, I would be perhaps a little bit concerned about the fact that you know, we're 22 years into this amalgamated city of Hamilton, and yet, you know, we, we, and we do this at the, you know, at the Spectator, you know, but we still speak of Stony Creek. We still speak of Ancaster, Dundas. I mean, those places are still alive in people's minds, and that's not going away. And, you know, that certainly seems to be the case with these migration patterns that people are. Choosing, you know, basically just to to put themselves in a different type of suburb. I think um, if you were to look at the charts, um, the number one place for migrants in the past five years—well, this is based on 2016 census data, obviously. Um, you know, the number one uh, place for migrants was Burlington. You know, so people just sort of moving across the border. You know, and one could speculate that that's probably price driven to some extent. Um, I think I think Oakville was third or fourth on the list mississauga i think maybe may have been second um so yeah you're just seeing this sort of outward you know sprawl
1: right right well and and so you know the outward sprawl is it's a really interesting thing because we've just gone through this long discussion about the urban boundary expansion and the city council decided not to it's going to cap that but when that discussion was going on the assumption was that the city population is going to continue to grow and grow and grow no matter what. If there's no new suburban homes to be built because there's no land, people who want to come here will end up moving downtown and buy a condo and densify downtown. This almost makes it sound like that's not a guarantee of a sure thing.
5: No, and I think if you were to, uh, you know, and I've done some of this work in the past when uh, when when census when various censuses have come out, um, you know, what you're seeing, if you look at the numbers, you'll see that the if you were to take the five suburban communities, uh, Stony Creek, Glanbrook, Ancaster, Dundas, Lambro, and add them together as sort of that outer ring of Hamilton, you know, those five suburban communities are growing their populations at a faster rate than the the mountain, you know, the old mountain part of the center city of mountain, Hamilton, yep, or the lower part of the old city of Hamilton. So, um, and what this uh, study from uh, Brian Ducette shows is that. Um, you know very little of the migration was to the Hamilton mountain. And so over time, you're seeing that these five suburban areas are increasing their proportion of the overall city's population. I don't know what that means. Uh, obviously they have space to grow still. and so it's as you pointed out, it's going to be very interesting to see how the um, you know freezing of the boundary, what impact that, that you know does that sort of tip the scale back into, Uh, you know, the population of the old city of Hamilton starting
1: to rebound. You know, there. I look, I wish we could talk about this for an hour right now because there's so many interesting things that come out of this. And one of them, and we just don't have time to get into it, is so much emphasis always with council is put on to building up the downtown core. If all or so many of the people flocking here are not looking there, should that change how council looks at what it does? We don't have time, as I say, to get into that, but it's certainly a really interesting part of this. Uh, The piece is called People Are Flocking from Halton and Peel to Live in Hamilton, just not in old Hamilton. It's by Steve Bust. You can find it at thespec.com. I'm sure it's going to be in the paper. Uh, Steve, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
5: Thanks, Scott. I always appreciate it.
0: (laughs) You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Yeah, it appears we're running in circles again. Ontario is likely, we're hearing, in another wave of COVID-19. This one led or driven by the highly infectious BA5 Omicron subvariant. Anyone else thinking, I know more about viruses and variants and this kind of stuff now than I ever thought I would in the entirety of my life? Two and, two and a half years of hearing this nonstop will do that to us. I know someone who knows way more than we do, though, because she talks about it every single day out of necessity. That is Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Uh, Dr. Thanks for the time today; really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. I, I what would be my bet that you would beg to talk about almost anything else these days than viruses and omicron and covid for just a little while any other health issue just for a little while
6: well you would be right scott you know there are so many other important health issues that are facing our community and uh, you know we'd love to be focusing on those And indeed that is what you see both for public health and across the healthcare system where we're trying to still manage this COVID 19 pandemic and what it means for all of us and for health services for our community as a whole while also trying to get back to deal with the other health issues that are very important and are facing our community.
1: And and look, I'm sort of half-joking because I'm sure there is COVID fatigue. I'm sure you're fatigued with talking about it. I know, and here's the other thing. I think there's a lot of people who are fatigued with hearing about it, and that's where this kind of becomes a challenge, isn't it, for you and for other experts and other people who are leading in this. How do you keep people's ear when they are just done with this and don't want to hear it anymore?
6: Yeah, Scott, that's that's definitely a good point in terms of where we're at. And unfortunately, you know, we've seen lots of people saying, well, isn't COVID over? You know, I'm so done with that. And, yeah. you know, have we moved past those things? And, and that's not the case. I mean, the COVID virus is going to be around with us for a long time yet to come. We are going to continue to see these new variants emerge um, as it goes forward. And so we're all going to need to continue to pay attention to it. And of course, you know, when we're talking about those things, it means making sure that we know what's going on in our community, where we're at with any new variants or that sort of thing, making sure that we're up to date with our vaccines is absolutely critical as we uh, as we go forward. We know they make a big difference in terms of what they mean for people's well-being, especially those who are most vulnerable. But also doing things like wearing masks when you're indoors. Yep, I'm going to say it again. We do need to wear masks um, at times and we're going to need to look and see what's going on in our community and look at wearing masks um, when we're in crowded places, especially if we're vulnerable to the virus and staying home when we're sick. That's still part of a change, I think, for some of us. You know, we used to go proudly out and say, ah, it's not too bad. I can, I can still get out and do things, but it's so important that you stay home, you take care of yourself, you get well. You don't expose others to the virus. And if you're in those vulnerable groups, those that are, you know, over the age of 70, the people who have severe illness, that you find out whether or not you're eligible for treatment and make sure that, you know, um if you're one of them, if you do get sick, go and get a PCR test. If you're rat positive, great. You've got that in hand. But if you have a, a rat test and it's negative, you still need that PCR And you can talk to your family dog get a prescription get that filled by the pharmacist it makes a big difference when it comes to people who who are vulnerable to the uh, severe effects of this disease
1: a few moments ago when you were just starting that answer you you said it's going to be for a while here that we're going to have this is that an understatement Uh, i mean there are people who say now we're always going to have this that this is never it will have different variants we've got a ba5 now we've got all these other sub variants but I mean, is is it for a while or are the experts, are you now looking, saying, you know, the reality is this is probably going to be something we have to deal with forever?
6: You know, Scott, that's a good point. And uh, this is something we're going to have to deal with. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like as it goes forward. As we see new variants, we're still learning. We've just been two and a half years of knowing about this virus and and learning what it means for us. But it is likely something that's going to be around. And that's why it is so important that we get accustomed to, you know, watching what's going on, looking at what needs to be done. And it's, we're going to get better science. We're going to continue to learn um, as we go forward and, and the variants will continue to occur. And so, you know, knowing what's happening, being up to date and getting comfortable with COVID. And this is why we talk about learning to live with it. Um, you know, knowing how we can still have very full and, um, you know, being full lives and being out doing the things we love to do, but being mindful of what it means for us and how we can best take care of ourselves and those around us is so important too. The,
1: the trick here too, is that, uh, I mean, we have flu season every year and I, I don't know, I don't, don't want to make a comparison here. I don't want to say something out of turn. Um, but we do have people who die of flu and we've had this discussion go back to the very beginning of this. And there may come a point when the number of people who are very sick from COVID and the number of people very sick from the flu are similar. And so how do we then convince people that one is worse? We don't have mandatory flu vaccines. How do we say we should make everyone go and get the boosters for this? I mean, there is a point at which the numbers and the comparison again, to go back to where we started, becomes difficult to make the case that we need to do these extensive things in our society, don't they?
6: Well, I think that's where we have to sort of step back and look at the full range of infectious diseases. We have lots of vaccine-preventable diseases that affect us that, you know, we have vaccine programs for that we start off in infancy and, and we're very mindful of in terms of, you know, if they show up, what do we do about it? We have things that we do around measles, where, which is a very contagious virus. And, you know, we've made really, really good progress um, with the nature of that virus of uh, reducing its impact. And so we've had to adjust to all sorts of viruses is really what I'm trying to get to. And, you know, they do have different characteristics. This one may be somewhat similar to flu in that it seems to have this sort of repeating pattern and this change in variation that happens over time and the need to adjust vaccines for it. And so we're going to have to sort out with COVID, you know, what it does mean for us, what the... the uh, the vaccine recommendations are going to be those sorts of things. I think that piece about though balancing you know the the um, measures that we have to take versus what we need to do to live a full life, have you know be economically prosperous, be socially, you know active, those are the things that we're sorting out right now is just you know where exactly how, what do we need to do to um, to protect ourselves and yet continue to move forward with our lives. And so right now, we know that the cornerstone of that really is vaccination. So and um, that's not, um, it's not without cost, of course, but it is something that makes a significant difference in people's lives. Whether or not we'll go back to the sorts of mandates that we saw as we were dealing with COVID-19 when it was an unknown and we weren't sure exactly what was required or we saw our healthcare system getting overwhelmed, I'm help- hopeful that with those vaccine mandates, or sorry, with the vaccines available, I should say, and people being wise in their day-to-day activities that we can really limit uh, the need for anything more stringent than that. So we'll continue to learn and we'll continue to give the best advice we can as
1: we go forward. That is Dr. Elizabeth Richards, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, who one day will be on this station talking about something beyond just COVID. But for now, it is COVID. And we, we always do appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this today.
6: Thanks so much,
0: Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
1: The Canadian Armed Forces has decided that it is going to change some of its rules so that you can be a little more individual if you want to join. You can color your hair. You can grow your hair to whatever length you really want. You can have tattoos even on your face. Um, if you're a man and you want to wear a skirt in the armed forces, that's now okay too. There are all kinds of these things. The idea, according to the Department of National Defense, is to support respect to support respect, diversity, and inclusiveness. Christian Luprecht is a professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's a fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. Uh, Christian, thank you, as always, for the time today. Good afternoon, Scott. So I'm reading this story, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, the world is a pretty dangerous place these days. Russia is fighting Ukraine, and the Middle East isn't exactly a peaceful place still, and there are parts of Africa that are warring with each other. And we are talking about whether our soldiers should be allowed to dye their hair purple or wear a face tattoo or whatever else. Is this, is this, is this an important thing that our military should be spending its time worried about?
7: Yeah, I think this really does matter. So it's a reflection of civil-military relations. and The military trying to balance, on the one hand, the expectations of Canadian society and of its members with the operational environment. And so what you lay out is constrained ultimately by two dimensions. One are the operational constraints and the other are safety constraints. So that is to say... Does it make sense to impose certain restrictions on your dress or your hair, your fingernails, whatever it might be, um, as a function of the job that you are asked to do? And does it provide safety concerns, um, uh, or, or are these restrictions also justified in terms of uh, in terms of safety concerns? So you might think, for instance, of a Mechanic that works on some intricate pieces um, on uh, on on jet engines um, with long nails, for instance, and you might strike a compromise and say, "Well, those nails might program might might cause a might might be a risk, but you know, if you wear safety gloves or so, then we can mitigate that risk." Or there are still some things that are off limits, like for instance, hair in your face. So your hair has, always has to be tied back because you need to be able to identify people um, properly. So this is trying to strike, I think. A better balance, because the default so far had been it's always about the discipline and the look of the organisation, and so there's sort of a certain, uh, certain, certain look that's sort of expected, and commanding officers could enforce that quite rigorously. And so now the effort is to to put an onus on the commanding officer and the particular trade to demonstrate that there is a genuine operational or safety requirement. Uh, to restrict someone from expressing themselves uh, the way they would like to express themselves. And there are some Mm. things that are, uh, that are off limits by virtue of uh, other elements of Queens orders and regulations. For instance, uh, any uh, any insignia or any signs that um, are demeaning that are hateful that are discriminatory that are racist that is already covered by other policies that these are unacceptable whether they are on display or in a hidden fashion on a tattoo in your body for instance
1: I understand that you know words like diversity and individuality are very relevant today in our society but isn't that the opposite of what a military is about, though the whole idea is that you're not supposed to be an individual. You are a part of a unit. You're a part of something bigger and you're not supposed to stand out. This is the part that I don't really understand. Individuality has never been seen as a benefit within a military. You're supposed to conform so that you all fit in and can do everything you're supposed to do together as a well-oiled machine. I, I don't get where individuality worked in an army.
7: So, I think this is about what the critics would call sort of a male heteronormative institution. And I know those are big words, but um, basically that the institution in itself is not neutral, but is shaped by traditionally shaped by certain particular, uh, value sets. And so that these value sets need to adapt to a modern and diverse society and to a modern and diverse Canada. Um, so you might think also, for instance, people who come from a particular religious backgrounds um, or particular ethnic backgrounds where, for instance, certain types of headgear um, is part of uh, what uh, what what is part of sort of their religious traditions. So would we then necessarily want to exclude people simply because they wear a certain type of headgear if that headgear, for instance, is not, um, does not pose any operational or safety impediments for the job that that particular person is doing. So I think it's also a matter of just responding to a society that is changing rapidly. And of course, as we know, the Canadian Armed Forces has some recruitment challenges and part of those challenges uh, stem from the fact that it has, uh, very particular um, very particular expectations. And yes, on the one hand, it is a national institution, and so it socializes certain norms and values. But I think the sense is that these norms and values uh, should be ultimately constrained uh, as you would be in any other job, by the functions and the tasks that you are expected to do rather than by some historical legacy that the particular institution brings with it because it is ultimately a government institution and the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department of National Defence are the single largest employer in the country. So they need to lead with the gold standard um, in terms of what the precedent is that we want to set for um, other employers in Canadian society in terms of the restrictions and constraints they might place on their employees. And so I think this is a good... Um, a good example of an institution that is trying to demonstrate that it is trying to strike a better balance um, on some of these very challenging conversations um, to make sure that uh, you can ultimately articulate and justify the restrictions that you might impose on someone and that these aren't idiosyncratic historical legacies uh, or idiosyncratic ideas by your local manager as to what he or she or they think uh, is or is not appropriate for a job
1: interesting and i do wonder i mean i wonder if by doing this obviously it's an attempt to try and recruit more people to come because there have been recruiting issues i i do wonder if saying you can grow your hair or you can have tattoos or whatever. I I wonder if this becomes a recruiting tool or if the people who are wildly individualistic anyway would never look at the military in a million years anyway because they don't think it's a place for them. It'll be interesting to see if this can work for bringing more people in.
7: Well, I think you'll find there's already people who exercise... Their particular forms of expression within the organization that are very loyal to the organization. Um, and the organization in many ways is like a family. It looks after its people and it has a reputation in general of looking after its people well. Although, of course, we know uh, that there are many areas where it could be doing a better job than it has uh, traditionally Done, And so if you're family, then you also recognize that within that family, there's bound to be uh, some diversity and that you want to recognize and you want to celebrate and you want to honor that diversity in the same way that we would do in Canadian society. And look, I mean, Canada here, this is an opportunity also for the Canadian Armed Forces to set a bit of a precedent uh, within NATO because there are many other countries that are struggling with this. Um, And so uh, Canada is also helping other countries and trying to see in a liberal democracy how to strike that balance. And, you know, old sergeants always say we're here to defend democracy, not to practice it. And I would say in terms of civil military relations, if you're here to defend democracy, then ultimately you also need to figure out what aspects of democracy you can and should practice within your institution and which ultimate aspects of democracy are the ones that in the institution where you sign up for unlimited liability that is to be ordered into uh, harm's way um, what you ultimately need to compromise on and this is an effort to strike a better balance.
1: Christian Luprecht, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University and a fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. We always love having you on. Thank you for the time today.
7: Always a pleasure, Scott. Have a lovely afternoon. (laughs) You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast
0: from 900 CHML.
1: Eric Hamm, professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, implications of monetary growth at Toronto Metropolitan University. You know, what I wanted to talk to you about, Eric, today, it's it's a a pretty devastating story that's talking about the impact, the growth, the expansion of poverty around the world as a result of this, particularly as a result of this Russia-Ukraine war. And, I, you know, look, you understand the, the economics of this. I really don't because I'm trying to wrap my head around how it's possible that one war, and not even a world war, a world war you go, yeah, okay, everyone's involved. How could one war suddenly lead to 71 million more people in the world, they say, experience more poverty and more hunger as a result of what's going on? How is that possible?
8: Well, it's possible because it's a really negative, what's called exogenous shock to the economy, which means it wasn't derived by economic forces, it was more something geopolitical and then dropped on the landscape. So what we're really talking about um, in a larger picture is something called contagion. And whenever you have one of these negative shocks in an economy and a big economy, there's what's called contagion effects, not unlike the flu and things start to move about all of the other economies. So What what measures contagion? How do we know the strength of that contagion and how, how hard it's going to be on your country? And there tends to be three things. The strength of your domestic economy, the level to which you are interdependent with the other country, and then the number of complementarities, meaning how many goods do you use in common? And so that's really the problem if you look at those one plus two plus three. Russian economy is very, very large. It's having a war with the Ukraine. So that's creating real supply side challenges of what is being shipped to and shipped out of a war zone. Now, take that in and of itself, and that would be enough. But when you, there's another reference to Hamilton, it would be enough. But when you marry that with the fact that we have runaway inflation and we have other supply chain challenges not even related To the war, well, then you've got a recipe for disaster because you've got these, again, this contagion, this moving through these economies and negative reactions have a multiplier effect and they grow and grow. And really, that's where we are, Scott. We're watching what happens when something bad multiplies.
1: Is this, would this have happened almost anywhere or is it unique to the geographic region because of Russia's oil, because of Ukraine's wheat and other uh, agriculture? Is it, is it just the worst possible place for this that would have caused all this?
8: Yeah, it is. It is a terrible place to have it. Now, of course, it would be anywhere, but you have to look back at our checklist of one, two and three, the strength of the economy is not great in Russia right now. It's not as negative as people thought it was gonna be, but it surely isn't as strong as it was. The level of interdependence is very high. They have many trading partners. And then you go back to the complementarity theory, what's the number one traded item and it's oil. So again, it checks off a lot of boxes in terms of our contagion theory. I mean, in other areas of the world and other products, you can a sense compartmentalize and stop the effect, stop that contagiousness going from economy to economy. Or if you can't stop it, you can minimize it. But again, I don't want to be too repetitive. When you look at Russia, when you look at what's going on geopolitically, the strength of their economy, how interdependent they are with other economies, and the importance of the goods being traded, we are where we are, Scott.
1: So again, the United Nations uh, Development program says that there's 71 million more people now experiencing poverty as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. Is it as simple as Canada, the States, European countries just sending cash to these places and the problem is solved? Is it? Is Would it be that simple?
8: No. And in fact, it, this is a good rule for everybody listening. A handout never solves anything. There has never been an economic catastrophe or even a downturn that was solved by handing out money. That never, ever works. It works in the very, very short run to pull some people out of poverty or at least put food on their table. And we never want to sneeze at that because, listen, people have to eat to stay alive. But in the long run, that's not going to be the solution to anything. What we have to do, unfortunately, is figure out a lot of things, some related to the economy, some not. I mean, we can tend to inflation and we can tend to items like that, But we can't tend to the war. No economic theorist is going to end the fighting between the Ukraine and Russia. So really, we're starting to have to rely on some, again, exogenous factors, things that are unrelated to the economy to have to solve economic issues. And that right there, Scott, is the genesis of our conversation, is that we've got some things the economy can fix, but we have many things that it can't. And that's where we are.
1: So what do we do then? I mean, most people I don't think are eager or comfortable when they hear about this, just sitting by and saying, I don't care if my country does anything. We would want something to be done, but what can be done?
8: Well, of course, you can send over humanitarian aid, and and that's going to be the first step. It's always the first step. But governments have to start putting increasing pressure on Russia. I mean, we already are, and it hasn't been going very well, but it doesn't mean that you can take... Your foot off the gas there has to be more political intervention and i'm not a historian of war or a political scientist but this isn't going to get better until this battle comes to an end and that's going to be a political solution not an economic solution so i would hope that governments around the world are at least keeping in contact on this and hoping to put pressure on the russian establishment listen one way or the other one way or the other this is going to end one day and trade and economic interdependence is going to get back to the way it was, or at least close to the way it was, but this has to end. These, This has to end. These atrocities have to end, and again, economic sanctions can only do so much. It's going to take government interventions to try to bring this thing to a
1: stop. That is Eric Kam, professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Always appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. You're the best, Scott. Stay healthy. A few hours from now, the Toronto Blue Jays are going to play the Seattle Mariners out in Seattle, essentially a Toronto home game. It's their western branch of rogers center anytime they go out there all the vancouverites come across the border and it's a it's a fantastic atmosphere mike wilder is uh toronto star columnist he is a podcaster with deep left field the deep left field podcast he is somewhere approaching the city of seattle right now mike how are you today
9: i'm doing all right thank you yeah i'm uh i'm doing this drive for the first time flew to vancouver this morning and Row. I'm driving down to Seattle. That way, I can, on the way back, hit up the Vancouver Canadians and see a couple of their
1: games. And it's gonna be a nice little weekend. No kidding. That is uh, that's that's a nice one for sure. Look, I, when I when I got to this, we've just passed the halfway point of the Blue Jay season. I wanted to do this the other day. We're getting to it today, but. This is not the Blue Jays team. I don't think that too many of us thought we were going to see at the start of the year when everybody was talking about them as World Series favorites and their starting pitching was going to be outstanding and Vladimir Guerrero was going to be even better than last year. And yet at the same time, they're still sitting in a wild card spot. So do we look at this and say this year has just been not really very good right now? Or do we? how do we look at the Blue Jays right now?
9: I mean, there's, there's no sane person who would look at the Blue Jays and say they're not very good. I know there are a lot of people who do believe that, but it's just it's, it's, it's an alternate reality, and it's not the truth. The truth is, Saturday, they had the third-best record in the American League, and then some horrible things happened both on and off the field over the next few days. They lost five games in a row but they're less than a week removed from having the third best record in the American league. I think what, when, when expectations are set to say that a team is a world series contender and is a really, really good team, there is a segment of sports fandom that believes, okay, so they're going to win pretty much every game. And every time they play a team that's worse than them, they're going to beat them. And, um, and, you know, that's just not the way baseball works, first of all. The Yankees are doing things that nobody expected them to do this year. They're on pace to set an all-time wins record, major league history, which is insane. You know, most people were picking them going into the season to finish third in the division. Um, but they're having this magical crazy year, so you know, muzzle talk to them, and, and, and we'll see what happens in the second half. But... Uh, they have a massive lead in this division. So you can't really compare yourself to that because that's an historical sort of thing. And then you look at what the Blue Jays have done. And what the Blue Jays have done is in the first half of the season played the most difficult schedule in the American League, in the Major Leagues, pardon me. And they came out of it in a playoff spot. They now play one of the 10 easiest schedules in the Major league the rest of the way, they're already in a playoff spot. I think we're so, like, um, conditioned to see the middle of the season, early July, the All-Star break, is, man, they really have to do something, because they're five, seven, nine games out of a playoff spot, and if they don't do something now, then then they're not going to make the playoffs. But they are one of three teams it's within a half game of the top wild card spot in the American League.
1: Yeah, they're and, and Mike, to... I think I think I think you hit the the point when you said a moment ago. The word is expectations. If if the Jays had not started this season with so many people talking about them as World Series favorites, I think a lot of people would look at this and say they're doing a they're they're doing quite nicely. Again, a, a couple wins here, and they're in second place in the AL East behind a team that's gone crazy. It, it was all, To me it's all the expectations It's entirely about what people Had been told they were going to see And that is not what they've seen So far
9: Yeah but you know what I think sports fans Well I think sports fans purport to be Brighter than that You know it's, it's very easy to <laughs> say Well you told us they were Going to be good now they're not good So they're awful As opposed to you told us they were going to be good. They're not that good. Maybe you don't know what you're talking about. I think that if, if you, you know, we're, we're in this whole think for yourself, uh, place in the timeline of society. And yet blame gets thrown so easily around, Hey, you told us this and this, this didn't happen. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen. And, You know, what's interesting also is that all these so-called experts uh, just say stuff with no accountability whatsoever. You know, all the people who said the Yankees are going to finish third and going to be hard-pressed to win 82 games this year, they're going to have their same jobs next year, even though they completely blew that. Um, what, What you need to do is, Take a look at the information. Take a look at the team. And when you looked at the Blue Jays this year in spring training, there was no reason to believe they weren't going to be absolutely a playoff team. And once you're a playoff team, you're a World Series contender because all you have to do is make it to the playoffs to be a World Series contender. And there was, there's no question that the Blue Jays are absolutely a playoff team. And as we sit here While they have 45 wins in their first 82 games, they remain absolutely a playoff team. Nobody's promising a 100-win season. Nobody's saying they're going to win the division by 20 games. Um, Baseball is very,
1: very, very difficult. And I think
9: every April, everybody forgets that all over again.
1: Well, and and with the time we have left, I mean the other side of this, and this is an old story. It's it's a repetitive and quite frankly a boring story now. I think, but if you look, there's three wild card teams in each league now. Um, all three of the wild card spots would come from the AL East, and the Yankees are in first. I mean, all four playoff, all four of the five teams in the AL East right now are sitting in a playoff position. I mean, it it, it never stops being a crappy division to be in if you really want an easy ride to the playoffs.
9: True, but then again, if 80% of the teams in the division make the playoffs, uh, maybe it's, it's not a horrible place to be. But they're changing it up next year. So I'm really interested to see what happens next season when you go down from 19 games against every team in your division to 14 teams, 14 games against every team in your division, which means the Jays, Red Sox, Rays, and Yankees will each have Fifteen fewer games against each other
1: yep. and 15 yep.
9: additional games against some of the lesser lights. So it might make the division even harder because they're not going to be beating up on themselves all the time. It's, it could be a lot of fun. It could be 400 It is next year yeah there could
1: be there and especially with, as you say with the new rules that could be uh, that could be the case we got to let you go mike you can follow mike Wilder, toronto star he writes there deep left field is the name of the podcast you can find him there mike safe drive always appreciate your time thanks for doing this thank you
0: you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml now this
1: next segment is if you are someone who is looking to sell a home uh this may be a little painful for you right now. If you're looking to buy a home, I don't know, maybe it's helpful, maybe it's painful, I'm not really sure. But either way, the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington has reported a drop in 37.8% in homes in the time between, uh, in the last quarter. I mean, it it is a stunning, absolutely stunning slowdown in a market that could not be stopped for the longest time. I mean, things, you could not keep a house if it was... I was going to say if it was decent, even if it wasn't, I guess. I mean, no conditions, just whatever, put whatever price you want, someone's going to buy it. It was in, well, you know what it was like. And all of a sudden now things seems to, the the, the, the brake pedal seems to have hit been hit rather hard. Rob Golfy is a sales rep with Remac Escarpment Realty. He's with the golfy team. You know him. You see his picture on signs and buses and I don't know where else you see his picture, probably everywhere. Rob, how are you today?
10: Good. Thank you, Scott. How are you?
1: i'm good where else do we see your pictures buses and billboards uh, have you got your your face anywhere else because i see you all the time like i feel like i know you
10: you, you know what really the it's only one bus that roll, rolls around the city and it just seems to get around a lot pretty good so that's <laughs> that's what everybody's seeing the one bus
1: that's it every i can't believe it's only one bus but uh rob is this is this the slowdown um for you it's probably not a great thing for realtors it's not great but for the average customer in the who's trying to get into the housing market or owns a home is this a good thing i guess it depends entirely on which side of the coin you're on here right
10: it, it, it is and it, you know what it is it, we, we, i knew that in the first quarter of this year the market was unrealistic the sellers that were selling and if they were getting out of the market, not getting back into the market, they did very well. But if you were buying, if you were selling and buying in that same market, you, you balanced out. But right now, the people that are, are selling and thinking that they can get the, the, the numbers that their neighbors got in uh, January, February, or March, it's not going to happen. Uh, the, 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 the market has changed. We, we are probably, I think we are at the end of the downshift of the uh, of the market um, and because I'm starting to notice that uh, uh, on my uh, emails today we're starting the sales are picking back up so that means the market has changed over the market uh, you know is finally settled I think there might be maybe another one or two percent settle but the one thing I'm, I'm really watching is 2017 this is almost an identical Market to two thousand and seventeen, remember then you know the first quarter, everybody was getting ridiculous amounts of money for their houses, and everybody thought they overpaid and then the market uh, shifted and, and changed and then through the summer market and it finally settled and then it went to a balanced market. but um, right now, uh, the one thing that we didn 't have in two thousand and seventeen um, is that the interest rates uh, before a pandemic, well, the government tried to pick up the, uh, the economy by, um, you know, lowering the interest rates. And so now they're trying to get them back to normal. We're not used to it. We, we always love a good thing, but when we hate it, when it goes to a normal thing, we're not used to it. 2017, the average uh, interest rate was 3.99. Right now, we're, I think, about 4.89. So we're not that far off of a, of a, of a normal market. We're not that far off. It's, uh, and I think things are changing right now as we speak. I think July and August, things are going to turn around. Still, it'll still be a good for buyers. A lot of great deals out there.
1: When you say it, it's normal, and this is the funny thing. A couple hours ago on the show, we were talking about gas prices, and... Um, we're sort of laughing that we're looking at gas prices as you drive by a station now going, wow, $1.79, that's amazing. And it's like, wait, no, that's not amazing. That's not that's our new new normal tells us that's amazing. I I guess it's the same with the housing market. We've gotten so accustomed to what this market is that certain things look more normal than they have been in a while. The the piece in the Globe and Mail, either today or yesterday, uh, points that out. It says there are people who are selling right now who are going to have to, and you alluded to this, are going to have to wrap their head around the fact that they're not going to get the peak dollar that they might have got even two months ago, that that more normal has returned. And you better wrap your head around that because it's not the same. No,
10: You're absolutely right. It isn't the same. I myself I'm I'm also an, an investor and I'm I've got my eye on two different properties right now that I'm looking at putting offers in. So I'm not afraid to put offers in at the interest rates that there are now. Um, I think there's there this summer is a good opportunity for buyers to get back in the market. Right now what's happening is and I and I tell this to sellers just hang on, be patient. A lot of the buyers are sitting on the sidelines and just waiting to see what happens because a lot of them, you know, the first-time buyers are worried, cause, you know, they're not sure, who, you know, what information to believe. The, you know, you got all the media and everything just saying that, you know, possible recession, housing prices are going to come down even more, all that kind of stuff. I I'm not even worried about that. Um, but the thing is sellers right now, we have houses that are priced right in this for this market. And they're not getting any showings. They just, those sellers out there that are listening and you have your house up for sale, just be patient. When the market starts turning around and, and, and houses are starting to sell, if your house is still, you're still not getting showings, then you probably have to readjust your price. But your house will sell. You just got to be patient in this market. Buyers, uh, it is a good opportunity. You can negotiate now. You got time. You get a home inspection done. Um, and, and, and it's good. But I think we, we've landed. And I even got a, uh, my news, um, um, newsletter that comes out next week. Uh, I have the, 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 different markets. Plus I put the 2017 market. It shows how the market, uh, peaked and, and, uh, took a bit of a downturn in 2017. And it is show we're kind of copying that same format. So I think things will uh, be fine. Things will be fine.
1: Rob, we got to run. So I've only got 15 seconds for your answer, unfortunately, but is this all to do with the interest rates or is there some psychology in this as well? That's now having an impact on people.
10: It's psychology. Um, The the people we got too used to uh, having, you know, 1.5 interest rates, 2% interest rates. And we just, it's just something that we have to adjust ourselves to get used to that, that the 4.89 or 4.5% interest rates, it's going to go up to five. And that's a normal market. It is a psychology thing. Once we get over that, things will start going back to
1: normal again. That is Rob Golfie. Always appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for doing this take care. Thank you for
0: having me. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
1: That is our time today. We are, uh, we are out of time. We have blasted through three hours. We've got lots more coming up tomorrow, three o'clock. I'll be back here. But for now, thank you to Will for keeping us on the air, pressing all the buttons, doing all the everything that he does to keep us on there. Uh, to the other Will, for lining up the show we got wills coming out the yin yang here we got wills everywhere that's not, we only hire people named will and scott apparently on this station uh thank you to the viewer of uh, viewers the listeners thank you to the guests thank you to everybody for being involved today as i say we will be back at three o'clock tomorrow would love it if you would join us then until that time have yourself a great night take care and boom
7: goes the dynamite